you're joining us uh, for the first time, and I see a ton of visitors, including actually my brother-in-law and my <laughs> my nephew's niece. They just showed up this morning. We're supposed to see them in Korea in a week, and they're like here. I didn't even tell tell us that they were coming. Um, we're in a sermon series called Voices, where we have a number of gifted men and women come and speak throughout the summer. Um, and today we're going to be hearing from Sky Jathani, who is becoming a good friend um, in a little bit. But I wanted to spend a moment talking to you about this week. While we were um, still mourning and lamenting the senseless deaths of Alton Sterling and Philando Castillo, sat there Friday night looking at images of what was happening in Dallas. five police officers were killed by a sniper while they were doing their duties during a peaceful protest. Let me say two things. And then we're going to have just a brief, not long. We spent two, two and a half hours here on Friday for those of you that were able to make it in prayer and lament. But I wanted to take a moment on this Sunday to for us as a church family to be able to mourn and lament and pray. So two things. One, we should and we absolutely need to grieve the tragic deaths of these five police officers. Their names are Brent Thompson, Patrick Zamaripa, Michael Crow, Michael Smith, and Lorne Ahrens. They're now Wives without husbands and children without fathers and fathers and mothers without sons. These deaths should break our hearts. We should grieve and mourn their deaths. And I wanted to begin there for this reason. There's this dangerous rhetoric and thinking out there that we need to diffuse and dismantle. That is... That to be for the fair and dignified and just treatment of black and brown citizens is not in any way to be against law enforcement. To be for, to be for black lives matter is not to be against the lives of police officers. To be against police brutality is not to be against the police. This is not an either or, but a both and. There is a dramatic difference. Anytime a life is taken tragically, senselessly, we should grieve, we should mourn. Are you with me, church? But that leads me to the second thing. And I need you to listen very carefully. If there's anyone here asking, why then don't we make mention every time a police officer is shot and killed? Again, let me be absolutely clear. It's not because their lives don't matter. It's not because their lives matter less. It is because we live in a country 
where the sanctity and value of a police officer has never been in question. But we live in a country where the sanctity and value of our black and brown citizens has been questioned by every fiber of our society. And we live in a country where systems and institutions continue to reinforce this. That is why when a black and brown citizen is unjustly killed, we stand up and speak out and say, that is wrong. As Christians, we stand in this unique space where the gospel allows us to do two things. One, it allows us to genuinely mourn and grieve and lament over the evil, over the pain and the suffering and all the injustice in our world. I know the American church doesn't want to talk about pain, suffering and injustice, but that is in the Bible. We don't turn away. We don't gloss over it. As Paul says in Romans 8, along with all of creation, we too groan for the day of redemption. It is perfectly right for us to gather today and say to God, God, I'm angry, I'm hurting, I'm confused, I don't even know how to feel. But I also want to remind all of us today that the gospel must keep us from cynicism and fatalism. The gospel must keep your heart and my heart from cynicism and fatalism. The same gospel reminds us that someday all evil, all injustice, all oppression, and all death will cease. And we need to remember that. We don't need to wish for that. Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, made sure that the certainty of a world without evil and injustice and sin and death will be ours. So even as we await his return and the establishment of his rule and reign, we pray for ourselves and the world as we fight injustice and evil in the world. And church... Let's also be clear about this. Violence begets violence. The kingdom's way toward true justice demands that we leave ultimate justice in the hands of the one true judge. This enables us to be peacemakers who work tirelessly for nonviolent justice here and now. Pastor Michael led us in a powerful call and response time of prayer and lament on Friday and this morning before I give some space for anyone to pray out I want to lead you and all of us in this prayer a call and response prayer I will lead the first portion and you as a church family will respond by saying come thou long expected Jesus set thy people free will you say that with me come thou long expected Jesus set thy people free I'll read the first portion you pray the second we lament 
because a child of God is dead and we wish it were not so. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, set thy people free. We cry out over blood spilled in vain. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, set thy people free. We mourn the loss of futures. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, set thy people free. We grieve the incompleteness of our systems of justice. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, set thy people free. We despair over our inability to imagine another way. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, set thy people free. We lament being caught in webs of racism, both past and present. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, set thy people free. We weep because we are not just strangers who are different, but we are estranged from one another. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, set thy people free. We lament that sin that is so deep within us all. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, set thy people free. We ache because the problems are deeper than we can grasp and they feel beyond our control. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, set thy people free. We mourn because hatred is woven into our shared lives and we rarely recognize it. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, set thy people free from our fears and our sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. From our fears and our sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. Psalm 13.
Church, we're doing something a little bit different today, and that is I'm going to bring Sky up in a moment or two, but on Friday, one of the most powerful moments was seeing our church family, brother and sister, embracing each other just a little bit tighter, holding into one another hands just a little bit longer, recognizing that we're one. In the next minute or two, before I bring Sky up here, will you take a moment to get up? And we do this every Sunday, but my prayer is that today will feel a little bit different. Look around you and go greet and pass the peace of Jesus Christ, the peace that he died for, unto your brother and unto your sister. Look into their eyes And pass the peace of Christ. Let them know how glad you are to see them here today with you. Among us. So you take a moment to do that. And our speaker Sky, in a minute or two, will come and share God's word with us. Church, will you stand? Look around you. Go seek out that brother. Go seek out that sister. We welcome to new community Sky Jathani. Sky is an author, speaker, consultant, ordained pastor. Between 2000 and 2015, Sky occupied numerous roles at Christianity Today, a leading communications ministry launched by Billy Graham. He's at one time both the manage, uh, managing and senior editor of Leadership Journal, and he's also the senior producer of This Is Our City, a multi-city project telling the stories of Christians working for the common good of their communities. He's authored three books. I've read a couple of them. Been very helpful in my own journey. Divine Commodity, Discovering of Faith Beyond Consumer Christianity. And I would call With, Reimagining How We Relate to God. He went to my alma mater, Trinity, where he got his MDiv. And Sky's married to his wife, Amanda. And they have three children, Zoe, Isaac, and Lucy. There's other things about Sky. I'm sure he'll fill you in on. Sky, if you would come on up. Give a warm, warm welcome to Sky time. Thank you. We recited this earlier, and I noticed it's, it's in the bulletin here, the, the mission statement for your church. In case you are unfamiliar with it, I'll read it again. We seek to be a city within a city, an alternate Chicago that passionately loves Jesus Christ, intentionally engages in authentic community, radically advances the cause of Jesus. I want to talk about that word radically. I'm 40, so if you're my age or younger, I would consider you... So I'm going to go, woo-woo, you're 40. <laughs> if you're my age or younger, I would consider you part of uh, what I call the jumbo jet generation. Uh, the reason I refer to it that way is because the jumbo jet, the Boeing 747, entered commercial service in 1969. And what that airplane did, if you weren't aware, is it made intercontinental travel affordable to almost everyone in the world. Because of the scale of number of people on that one airframe, it made the cost of travel much lower. 
and it fundamentally changed our world. For example, more people have immigrated to the United States through LAX than through Ellis Island. My life literally would not have been possible in a world before the jumbo jet because it allowed a 24-year-old nurse here in Chicago who graduated from Austin High School to afford a plane ticket to go to India where she met a young widower and a young, who had a young son and they ended up getting married and resettling here and here I am. But that also started more than just intercontinental travel. It also began an era of globalization where not just uh, transportation but communication technologies began to change. We had live television when I was growing up, so I could see world events unfold right in front of me in real time. I remember being a child watching as a terrorist stuck his arm out the window of a TWA jet with a gun and realizing, I don't see that every day in my neighborhood. I remember watching Saturday morning cartoons and having them be interrupted because of tanks rolling into Tiananmen Square. Now, my life was a little bit unusual, at least my upbringing, because of the diversity of my home and the fact that by the time I graduated high school, my dad had dragged me all over the world. I think I'd been to 30 foreign countries before I went to college. But even if you didn't have that experience, because of the era in which we have been raised, because of global travel, because of instant communication, we have had more exposure to the realities of the world without having to necessarily experience them ourselves than any generation in history. And that transformation of our perception of our engagement with the world is continuing as now technology has gotten to the point where we can see cell phone footage from a camera of the horrors and injustices that we saw this week. Of course, those things have always happened, but now we are seeing them, those of us who've been isolated from those things in a way that we hadn't before. And all of this awakens in us a sense of grief at how broken our world is, as we see the injustice and the poverty, as we see the evil, both at home and throughout the world. It awakens a sense of injustice, a sense of compassion, of empathy, and it makes us want to do something, which is why I refer to us as an activist generation. We want to see the world radically changed because we, more than any other generation, have seen how radically broken it is. So it makes sense to me that in your mission statement, you would say that you want to radically advance the cause of Jesus. But what does that mean? What does it mean to live radically? There was a book that came out a couple years ago. A lot of people may be familiar with it by David Platt called Radical. I had a mom come up to me a couple years ago after she had read this. She was a little bit older than I was. Her kid's a little bit older out in the suburbs. And she came to me and she said, look, Sky, I read this book, Radical. And she said, I I agree with an awful lot of the critique that he's making in that book about how kind of selfish we are as American Christians. But she said, I'm left hanging with this question. How radically do I have to live to actually follow Jesus? And not exactly knowing how to respond to that question, I did what I've been taught to do, which is ask further questions. Well, how radically do you think you have to live? And she said, well, is it even possible to live in the suburbs and follow Jesus? And she, this was not a joke. She was being quite serious. Can, can you be a suburban mom with a minivan and three kids in private school and follow Jesus? Or... Do I have to leave and go somewhere more radical? 
Do I have to become a missionary overseas? Do I have to give up my home? Do I have to, you know, go dig wells somewhere in Africa with orphans strapped to my back as I'm translating the Bible for some unreached people group? Like, how radical do I have to be to follow Jesus? This is the kind of question in one form or another that I hear quite frequently from people my age and younger, especially when I go to colleges and universities, because everyone is going to graduate and change the world in like 30 days. There are real evils and injustices all around us. And yes, they do need to be addressed. But what does it mean to address them radically? I want to go to a story that if you've had your nose in the Bible for any length of time, or if you've been in the church any length of time, you're probably very familiar with it. But maybe I can help you see it from a different point of view. It's a story that I think highlights three different ways to think about what it means to be radical. It's in Luke 15. It's the parable of the prodigal son. Let's kind of go at it in pieces. And I'm going to pause as we go through it and, and, and help you see things maybe a little differently. Jesus is telling this story to, uh, at a dinner party where he's sort of the guest of honor. And the Pharisees, the religious types, are really annoyed with Jesus that he's hanging out with some ne'er-do-wells, some sinners and tax collectors. And so he tells them a series of stories explaining why he engages these people. And in Luke 15, verse 11, he begins the third of these stories. He says, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Okay, let's pause there for a minute. In this story, the younger son, in my household, we would refer to this kid as a chotch ball. That's our slang for just a completely self-centered jerk. He says to his father, hey, I want my part of the inheritance now, which is another way of saying drop dead. I don't care about you. I just want the money that's coming to me. And then he leaves to go off to a distant country where he spends all of this wealth however he wants, indulgently on his own desires. This is one way our culture understands the radical life. Some in our culture look at all the brokenness in the world, all the injustice, all the pain and all the suffering, and they say, you know what? All that matters is pleasure. It's making sure that I somehow get through this world as, as pleasurably and comfortably as I possibly can. The radical life is the self-centered life. It's the one that is focused entirely on satisfying my desires. And frankly, there's a lot of this in the American church. This younger son for me really represents Christian consumerism. What Christian consumerism says is, God, I'm not really interested in you. I'm just interested in what I can get from you. Just like this younger son says to his dad, I don't care about you, dad. I'm not interested in you. I just want what I can get from you. I want your property so I can then go use it to pursue my dreams and desires. An awful lot of the American church is built on this premise. It's telling people, whatever you want, whatever you dream of, you can get it. All you need to do is get God on your side. I've been around the country a lot. I've spoken in a lot of places. There are phenomenal churches. There are not phenomenal churches. There are big churches and there are small churches. And if you want to know how to grow a big church really quickly, it's not hard. 
It's incredibly simple. All you do is survey people, find out what they want, and then tell them that Jesus is how to get it. I'm not saying every big church is built that way, but the quick ones are. A friend of mine likes to joke that in the American church, we've made Jesus into the duct tape WD-40 combo pack. He's all you need to fix just about anything. You want a better marriage? Jesus will give it to you. You want a better job? Jesus will give it to you. You want a better this, a better that? Jesus will give it to you. We make him into a device to achieve what is our true desire. So the son takes what he can, takes what he can from his father and spends it in self-indulgently. Verse 14 then says, When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. So he hits rock bottom. Verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here in hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. All right, pause there for a second. I heard this story a lot, especially when I was a high school student and a college student kind of on the periphery of the church. You may have heard this story a lot. And almost every time I heard this story presented, it was given to me as a story about repentance. Look, he turns around. He goes back home to his father. He apologizes. And yet, the more I've studied this passage, the less I think it's actually about repentance. Because I'm unconvinced that there's any genuine repentance going on here. Now, repentance literally means to turn around, to go a different direction. And in that sense, okay, yeah, he was walking away from his father, and now he's coming back to his father. But the question is, why? Was there any real turn of heart? Why does he go home? He says to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I'll arise and go to my father and say to him, hey, I've screwed up. I'm not worthy to be called your son, but just... Make me like one of your hired servants. Why does he go home? He's looking for another handout from his father. Yes, he's been humbled. He's not asking for as much, but he still just wants another thing from his father. A place to sleep, a job, some food. He's still just looking at his father as a source of comfort. Someone I can get something from. He wants to use his father This is one form of radical life, of radical faith that we see in the church. It tells us that God exists to be used. Now, to be fair, most of us come to faith this way. Most of us come to Jesus initially because we need him to solve some problem in our life. How many have come to faith because of an addiction? Because they needed sobriety? How many have come to faith because they've screwed up a relationship? Or they're in economic distress? Or they've experienced the brokenness and pain in this world to a level that they'd never thought they would? A disease, an unemployment, you name it. We come to Jesus because we desperately need his help. And we see this throughout the scriptures. People who need healing, who need forgiveness, who need something from him. 
And there's not a single story in scripture of Jesus turning anyone away in need. In this story, when the father sees his son coming home, in verse 20, it says, while he was still a long way off, the father felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. The son began to say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But I love this. In verse 22, the father doesn't even acknowledge the younger son's apology. Instead, he turns to the servants and says, Quickly, bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Here's the truth. We all come to God with mixed motives. And he doesn't care. Because he is so overjoyed to have us back home. But we do need to realize that we can't stay there. We can't stay in that immature faith that just says, gimme, 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 take, 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 feed me, feed me, feed me. Unfortunately, in too many of our Christian communities, Not only do we allow people to stay there, we celebrate it. Consumer Christianity is a plague on the Western church. I could harp on that all day, but that's not really what I think most of you are probably struggling with. Because we've got to get to the older son, the other way of living radically. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field... And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. The servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But the older son was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he, the younger son, answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed any of your commands. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours has come, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? Parenthetically, are you kidding me? This older son, the good son is just as lost as his younger brother was. This older son is having a pity party for himself out in the field. And the father finally comes to him and says, come on in, join the celebration. And the older son is like, wait a minute, where is my celebration? I have obeyed everything you've asked me to do. I've never disobeyed one of your commands. I have served you faithfully all these years. This older son for me doesn't represent Christian consumerism. He represents a sort of radical Christian activism. There are a lot of us who build our sense of value, our sense of identity, our sense of significance by how faithfully we are following the command of Jesus in our lives. Now, 
in the American church, we tend to define what the mission of God is differently depending on our tradition or our community. In some circles, the mission of God is strictly evangelistic. It's about proclaiming the gospel and winning lost souls to Christ. In other communities, it may be that, but it may be more emphasized on the the social justice aspect of it, that the mission of God is to uproot injustice and change the world and make things more equitable and fair, to take things that are wrong and make them right again. And no matter how you define it, I don't really care. The danger is that in either community, we can emphasize this mission so heavily that it becomes everything. That your value, your significance, your identity, even what God thinks about you is all determined by how radically are you pursuing the work of God in the world? How much are you willing to sacrifice to see the world change? How are you going to deal with all those injustices that you see on television and on YouTube and on Facebook and on the news and in your neighborhoods? How are you going to change the world? That becomes the end-all, be-all of your identity. And don't mishear me. The world is profoundly broken and does need radical change and transformation. But what we see in this older son is the image of a person who gets their entire identity from that mission. Where's my party, Dad? I've always obeyed you. Where's my sense of significance and honor, God? I have done amazing things for you in this world. Tim Keller, pastor in New York, likes to say that an idol is a good thing that has been made into an ultimate thing. I think in a lot of the American church, and again, depending on the particular variety or stream of the Christian tradition you are in, in a lot of the American church, we have taken the very, very good thing of the mission of God, and we have made it into an ultimate thing. I'm ordained in a denomination called the Christian and Missionary Alliance. We take the mission very seriously. But I care about the mission of God too much to care about the mission of God too much. There are things that you care about deeply in this community and in this church, some of which we have lamented and prayed about this morning If you truly care about those things and making them right, you need to be on guard that you don't care about those things too much. I know that sounds contradictory, so let me take some time to explain the danger. One of the most frightening passages in the whole Bible for me occurs in Matthew chapter 7 toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount. There Jesus says, On that day, meaning the day of judgment, he said, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Look at all that I've done for you. I've never disobeyed one of your commands. These are people who preached in the name of Jesus, who transformed the world in the name of Jesus, who combated evil forces in the name of Jesus. These are people who are completely convinced that they belong to Jesus because they have spent their whole life radically advancing the work that they believe he's called them to. And yet Jesus says, I will turn to them and say, away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. It is possible to spend your whole life dedicated to the mission of Jesus 
and yet miss Jesus himself. The scariest word in that scariest passage for me is the word many. Many will come to me on that day completely convinced that they belong to me because they have radically and self-sacrificially devoted themselves to my work and yet I never knew them. Father, I've never disobeyed one of your commands. I have served you faithfully my whole life. Where's my party? A couple years ago, I led a group of college students. I live out in Wheaton in the safe suburbs. You should see my neighborhood. My goodness. We have issues. We just like to talk about them with a therapist instead of a police officer. I was leading a group of college students from Wheaton College. We'd meet on Sunday nights. And, um, you know, these kids, kids, these students, sorry, I'm 40. Um, they, would, they got so much Bible and theology and chapel services and all that that I didn't want them to come and sit with me and just have me preach at them again or give them more Bible study. So we'd get together and I would say, what do you guys want to talk about? And they determined the topic. And one night they said, well, we really want to talk about habitual sin or the ongoing presence of sin in our lives. I'm like, ooh, sounds juicy. Let's do that. So uh, they were talking about, there's about 10 or 12 students, uh, very diverse group, gender, race. And as we're talking, eventually I realized, okay, we need some structure to this. So I said, let's do this. I want to go around the conference table and I want everyone to answer this question. I don't want to know what your particular sins are because... Yeah, but I want you to answer this question. In the midst of your sin, how does God view you? So the first student goes, young woman, grew up overseas as a missionary kid, and she said that when her parents were her age, they were also students at Wheaton College, and at that time, a a radical, there's that word again, revival had broken out on campus. And as a result of that revival, her parents and many of their peers had committed themselves to international missions. So they sacrificed the comforts of life here, moved overseas, and she said, I had these wonderful parents growing up, grew up in this phenomenal community of missionaries, and have been given every opportunity, and now I'm a college student at Wheaton College, and how is God ever going to use me the way he's used my parents if I'm still struggling with sin the way I'm struggling with it? The next student shares, and and he quotes scripture. He said, to whom much is given, much is expected. And God has given me so much and he expects so much from me. And how am I ever going to change the world if I am struggling with the sins that I am struggling with? And in one form or another, every student around the circle for the next 45 minutes shared essentially the same message. That God is disappointed with me. God is frustrated with me. How is God going to use me? Some of them breaking down into tears. Some of them mentioning the social injustices that they care passionately about. And how am I going to address those things if I have got whatever it is in my life? Finally, it gets back around the circle to me. And I ask a couple follow-up questions. I ask them, how many of you grew up in homes where your parents were committed to Christ? Every one of them raised their hand. I said, how many of you grew up in church communities where... The gospel was preached and the scriptures were taken seriously. Again, every one of them raised their hands. And I kind of got choked up. I got a bit emotional. And I said to them, 
It's shocking to me then that not a single one of you, after 18, 20, 22 years in the church, not a single one of you gave the right answer. Not one of you said that in the midst of my sin, God loves me. What had been driven into these young people, implicitly or explicitly by the Christian subculture, was that what mattered most about them was their usefulness to God's mission. And therefore, everything about them, even the absence or presence of sin in their life, was measured by how useful am I going to be to God in this world? So we have one error, the younger son, who says, essentially, God exists to be used. And then we have the inverse error, the older son, which says, no, I exist to be used. And we kind of oscillate between these two poles in the church over and over and over again. What are we to do about it? What are we to do about these two false gospels of the radical life? One saying radically self-indulgent view of God and faith. The other a radically missional view of God and faith. Both of them are dangerous perversions of what we are actually called to. Well, the answer doesn't come until the very end of the parable. Remember, the father had gone out to the older son to try to get him to come in and join the party. The older son has said, hey, I've served you. I've done everything right. Where's my party? Finally, the father answers in verse 31. And he says to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. There's a lot in these little verses. Right here, the kind of odd behavior of the father begins to make sense. Why does he go out and run to his younger son who's coming home? Why does he go out to the older son and beg him to come in and join the party? Verse 31, he says, son, you are always with me. Notice, he doesn't even acknowledge the older son's obedience. He doesn't say, yeah, you know, you've done a lot of great stuff for me. You've really served me well. You've really obeyed all my... He never even acknowledges it. Just as he never acknowledged the younger son's disobedience. He doesn't acknowledge his apology. He doesn't say, yeah, you were a total chotchball. I mean, he doesn't do any of that. Why? Because what matters most to the father is not the younger son's disobedience, and it's not the older son's obedience. What matters most to the father is his children's presence. That's why he runs out and embraces his younger son. He was overjoyed to have him back home. And that's why he says to his older son, hey, all these years, I've had you with me. What's mattered is that we've been together, not first and foremost your service. Here's the lie that we tend to think especially when we become educated or affluent or we have some access to power in the world, we think that God actually needs us to accomplish something for him. If he needed us to do anything, he wouldn't be much of a God, would he? I have a friend, another friend in ministry, who likes to joke that in the Old Testament, it was considered a miracle when God spoke through an ass. But now he does it every Sunday. (laughs) He can accomplish his purposes any way he wants. He does not need you. He wants you. 
He wants you. I'm not saying our obedience doesn't matter or disobedience doesn't matter. It does. It just doesn't matter nearly as much as we think. And it is not what defines your value. What defines your value is that you are a child of God, holy and dearly loved. The reason Jesus came and sacrificed himself for our sins was not so that he could use us to turn the world upside down. It's so that he could reconcile us to the Father because he wants us with him. And in the process of drawing deeply into communion with him, will he change the world through us? Absolutely. But we must put the first thing first. The word radical comes from a Latin word, radicalis, the same root where you get the term radish from, the vegetable. Radical literally means rooted, deeply rooted. The truly radical Christian life is not the one spent using God for self-indulgence, nor is it the one spent for God on mission in the world. The truly radical Christian life is the life that's deeply rooted in communion with God. That is so deeply intimate with him. That his spirit and life flows through us as Jesus talks about in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and I will abide in you and you will bear much fruit. The first calling of the Christian life is not to change the world. That is God's work. Our first calling is to abide profoundly and deeply in communion with God in prayer. That is where we experience his presence. That's where we know his joy. That's where we discover our value, our significance. And out of that peace and security and strength, we find the power to love, to serve, to bless, to embrace, to forgive, to heal. If we do not know that in ourselves, how on earth do we ever provide it to a world that is so broken and desperate? If you want to see this world changed, if you want to see the injustices that happened this week overturned and never happen again, you first have to root yourself deeply in the power and love of God. There's a story, I don't know if I told this years ago the last time I was here, but let me end with this because I think it highlights what this kind of life looks like. It seems appropriate this week. In 1956, Martin Luther King Jr. was a young Baptist minister in Montgomery, Alabama. And through some strange circumstances, he ended up, of course, leading that bus boycott that began when Rosa Parks wouldn't give up her seat. On the night of January 27th, he got a phone call in the middle of the night, and the voice on the other end of the line threatened him and his family, saying that if he wasn't out of town in three days, he'd be dead. And of course, being a black minister leading a boycott in the South in 1956, this is not an idle threat. King hung up the phone, and he couldn't go back to sleep because he was so paralyzed by fear. So he poured himself a cup of coffee and sat down at his kitchen table, buried his face into his hands, and began to pray. He later, in a sermon, told his congregation that he was truly paralyzed by fear, trying to figure out how to get 
himself, his wife, his infant daughter out of town. But over that cup of coffee, in prayer, something else happened. He heard another voice, the voice of Christ speaking to him. The Lord said to him, Stand up and pursue justice. Stand up and seek the truth. Stand up and face those who are against you. And I will be with you always. I will never, never, never leave you. I will never leave you or forsake you. King said that at that moment, the presence of God was so real to him, so deeply experienced in his soul that his fear was absolutely gone. And he said, at that moment, I knew I could stand up and I could face anything. That was tested three nights later when he was at a rally in his church. And someone ran in the back and announced that King's Parsonage had just been firebombed. The little house down the road where his wife and daughter were. So the congregation ran out the back of the church, ran down the street to find his house still on fire. Thankfully, his wife and daughter escaped unharmed. But King knew that the bigger danger was still in front of him because surrounding his house was a very large, angry mob of African-American citizens with baseball bats and rifles and guns ready to riot because of this attack on his home. Then King did something absolutely stunning. He got onto the porch of his still-burning house and he addressed the crowd And he said to them, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. But I want you to love your enemies. Love them and let them know that you love them because we are doing what is right. We are doing what is just and God is with us. When they heard that, everyone dropped their weapons. They held hands together and they began to sing Amazing Grace. One of the white police officers who was there that night said that if it hadn't been for King, we would have all been dead. Historians look back at that moment as a turning point in the civil rights movement when love for one's enemy took the forefront and it changed our culture. I think the historians are mistaken. That was not the turning point. The turning point was three nights earlier when King was alone in his kitchen and he discovered a life radically rooted in communion with God as the source of the strength, of the peace, the power to love even one's enemy. There is a lot broken and wrong in our world today. And we see it more than ever. It's always been there. We just see it more than ever. And we are appropriately grieved and motivated to want to change it. We have to keep the first things first. If we're going to find that power, that strength, it begins with a life rooted with God in prayer. And then expectantly allowing him in whatever way he wants to work through us to change the world. That's the real radical life. We must remember that before we're called to some place, like Chicago, or something, 
like mission or justice, we are first and foremost called to someone. Let's end our time in prayer. Let me pray for all of you and invite you in this next few minutes to pray as well silently to our God and either confession of how you've sought to use him or confess perhaps how you've built your sense of identity and significance and how you believe he wants to use you. And then turn your hearts to a desire to just be with God who longs more than anything to be with you. Our Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful that you welcome us with all of our mixed motives, all of our sin, all of our rebellion, all of our injustice. And I'm amazed at times where you see fit to use us to impact another life, to change a community, to shift our world a little closer to the one you want it to be. We are grateful for your mercy. We are awed by your mission. But above all, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with a vision of who you are of your beauty, of your value, of your worth. That as we stand in the light of your glory, as we behold all that you are, as we sense the magnitude of your value, we would also begin to sense how greatly you value us. May we carry that peace and that dignity into a world that looks for it in all the wrong places. I pray that you would bless the people of New Community Covenant Church. That you would bless them with your presence. You would bless them with your spirit. You would bless them with your peace and your power and a love which is beyond earthly explanation for one another, for those around them in this place, and even for those who would oppose them. Lord, give them the strength to not fear their enemies. Give them the power to heal those who would seek them harm. And Lord, fill them with all they need to be your people here, radically rooted in communion with you. We ask all of this through the powerful name of Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit as one God now and forever. Amen.